And I'll start reading in verse 28. Now, about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter, John, and James, and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. Behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, the two men who stood with him. And as the men who were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. And he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you so much for uh, my Fishervale family and uh, the friends and family have came here, and I pray that I'll be able to uh, be filled by your spirit to preach your word, to show Christ as and all of his worth that he has through your word. And I pray you give me strength in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, when I was a kid, me and my mom, in elementary school, me and my mom would sometimes go home, and I'd go home and watch the Oprah Winfrey show. Um, it, spiritual walkiness aside, she, she's not a good person to go for religion, of course, but we always like seeing what kind of people she would have on. She might have like a doctor or a crazy prophet or something like that. But I always liked watching her because she had this youthful exuberance that just glowed off of her. She would sometimes, you know, go up and down the aisles running, saying like, you get a car, you get a car, and all that stuff. And it really had an effect on me. But the one episode I remember more than any other was an episode where it showed like behind the scenes, like what happens behind the scenes of what it takes to make the show. So it showed like the cameras, it showed like the sound booth and the microphones. Uh, but the part that really struck with me more than anything else for some reason was when they showed her in her dressing room before she had all of her makeup done and her hair done, and she looked so different to me. And it, like she did not look youthful and energetic. She looked older and tired. She had bags around her eyes and just shocked me because that was the first time I ever realized that people cover up who they truly are. And what happened in the show was I was always seeing what Oprah wanted us to see rather than who she really was. And that's not just something against Oprah. You can look up any celebrity without their makeup and see shocking results. But this is, that's what made an effect on me. And you can, it's not just a celebrity thing either. Uh, the makeup business is a billion, $100 billion industry in 2017. We want to cover up. But it's not just a physical thing either. It's not just makeup. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. It goes to a spiritual level, too. We often do not want people to see who we really are. We, get cu- we cover up what we, who we are. We see it in a, no one's social media or Facebook, Instagram profile really shows you who they are. It's only what they want you to see. You can't see anything unless someone posts it. So we see everyone seeing so happy on Facebook, so happy on Instagram, but you never see any of the hard time, times. And that's because we only show people what we want them to see. We cover up. We put masks on sometimes. Some of us want to sound smart, so we use big words, uh, theological words like, uh, I know a lot of them, (laughs) but I'm not going to use them. And then, uh, (laughs) to prove a point, um, 
or we can show, act like we're more holy than we are, more this or that than we are. We put on masks, because deep down, we all as fallen humans, this is a part of who we are, we know deep down that if someone saw everything we really were, we'd end up being uninteresting, boring, and actually not very pretty, or maybe even ugly, if we peel back the layers. But there's someone who's actually completely different than that, the complete opposite. There's someone, if you take back the layers, you peel back the layers, take off the mask, take off the makeup, he gets more and more beautiful. And that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, the more you peel back the layers, the more you see him, the more glorious he gets. And in Luke chapter 9, the, verse, the text I just read, we're seeing that kind of behind the scenes, like that Oprah Winfrey episode, where we're seeing like what's going on behind the scenes, what's happening behind the curtain of this whole Jesus person who's going around. And we see that. Uh, we see that's what we're seeing. And that's a whole question. Who is Jesus? Everyone's wondering that throughout chapter 9 itself. In verses 7 through 8 in chapter uh, uh, 9, we see Herod's perplexed about who Jesus is. He's wondering who he is. And we see the people, we get the people's opinion twice. They think he's some sort of prophet or Elijah or John the Baptist. We even get to see the disciples' opinion who Jesus is. They think he's the Christ of God, which they're right in some ways that Jesus is a prophet. And he is the Christ of God. But what they really think that means is falls short. Because they think it's so filled with what their connotations, it's not enough. Jesus is so much more than what they're really thinking, what they're really believing. And that's how it is with us. We, we don't necessarily fully grasp who Jesus is. And that leads us to so many problems. It leads us to doubt. It leads us to sin when we don't fully grasp who Jesus is. And we are like the disciples. We need to see this glory. And we read at the first thing in verse 28 that Jesus goes up and prays on the mountain, which shows that he has a, he's a praying person. And Luke does love to show us that Jesus has a fantastic prayer life. But this prayer here, I think we can actually even guess what he's praying about. He's not praying for him. Uh, he's praying for the disciples to see this glory. He takes his t- three closest friends to see his glory, and he's praying for them, which to me shows that the transfiguration is not something for Jesus. Jesus never had any doubt of who he really was. The transfiguration is a gift to us, a gift to his disciples, that we may be able to see who he is. And that's the kind of God, the prayer that God loves to answer of Jesus Christ. And this is the kind of gift we have in God's word, that we are able to see what Jesus really is, not who the people say he is, not even who the disciples say he is, but as he really is in and of himself and who the Father says he is. So that's kind of the culmination of all these questions happening in chapter 9. So the first thing Jesus answers, God answers Jesus' prayer, and the first thing that happens is his whole form changes. His appearance changes, and that's why it's called the transfiguration. That means to change appearance. And his face changes, and his clothes. Luke puts a lot of emphasis on his clothes, his white robes specifically. And that's not just anything. White robes in the Bible and also in the ancient Near East, and that in this time period— represent heavenly beings. And Luke, whenever he mentions angels, especially later and in the first chapter of Acts, they're described as having white clothes on, white robes. And that's to show that Jesus is a divine being. He's not any just, he's not just any man. He's not just an earthly being. He's from another world. And that also that heavenly white being shows that he's also pure. He's holy. He's righteous. Soon Jesus will be tried as a criminal. And that's This, at the transfiguration, we see that that's not true. Jesus is pure. Jesus is holy. Jesus has kept all God's laws for us. And that's how we can be. But he's not more, he's more than just a heavenly being. He's more than angel. 
Luke, Luke describes it as dazzling white clothing. And dazzling here is kind of soft. The Greek word goes for flashing forth like lightning. The whole lightning strike is coming off from him. The light that can like light a whole black night in a single second that comes from a lightning bolt is shining forth out of Jesus. And it shows that his divine nature, that he is God. Because light in the Bible has a lot to do with God. If you, 1 John chapter 1, verse 5, clearly tells us God is light. And uh, James chapter 2 says that God is the father of lights. In 2 Timothy, we read that he dwells in an approachable light. And any Old Testament uh, reader will know that Moses, just being around God, would have light contract on his face and would shine off uh, to everyone in the congregation. But Jesus' light is different than Moses' light. It doesn't come from being around God. It comes from just himself. It's coming right after. It's not contracted. It's something that's a part of his very essence. And that light shows that Jesus is God, which is one of the central and most radical claims of our religion. It's something that makes the story of Jesus so beautiful, so interesting. It's not, if Jesus is just a good teacher doing good things, and getting persecuted for it, then we've had plenty of those in history. If Jesus is just a good teacher who got persecuted, we might as well worship Gandhi and add him to the list. But Jesus is more than that. Jesus is God come down to be the suffering servant. And that's where the beauty comes in, because him just being a crucified criminal doesn't mean anything. It's the fact that he was the God who sits in unapproachable light, the God who gave light to all beings, the God who was in heaven eternity past being worshipped by angels, is the one that came all the way down to be with sinners, to be born in the manger, to be with us, and to die on a cross. That's, that great chasm he had to cross is what shows the glory of our God. And that's the God, that's who Jesus is. But that goes, it goes beyond, uh, he's not just the God who's come down, he's come down for a specific purpose. He didn't just come down to do all these things for no reason. And that's where we get into the next part. God gives Jesus two witnesses. You know, in the Old Testament, no charge could be stated by more than two to three witnesses. And God gives Jesus the best witnesses he could possibly ever give him. We read that Moses and Elijah came to him in verse 30. Moses and Elijah were the big guns of the Old Testament of Israel's history. These were like seeing Washington and Abraham in the flesh for Americans. But even more than that, because they, they represent in themselves Moses represents the law, and Elijah represents the prophets, the two major sections of the Old Testament. So here we have Jesus stood by the two people who represent the Old Testament revelation, all the Old Testament's pointing to, the big figures in Israel's history are standing right by Jesus. And this disproves one of the major theories of who Jesus was, as we read uh, twice in verse uh, chapter 9, has already been said, is some people think Jesus is Elijah, which here it's instantly proved wrong because Elijah is right by him. So he's, been, he's not just another prophet like Moses and Elijah. He's someone who all the prophets point to. Both, if you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament needs a conclusion if you read it. The, uh, the law and the prophets can't end in themselves. Israel has a law that they can't keep, and they have sacrifices that can't make them holy, and they are constantly under the oppression of uh, enemy nations because of that sin. They are in need of saving. They are in need of a new king. But how's that king, how's Jesus the fulfillment 
of that? What is he going to do that makes the Old Testament story end well? How is he going to bring this all to a close? And the answer is Exodus. If you read in verse 31, what it says they, we can see what they spoke of, what Moses and Elijah are speaking about. And only Luke gives us this hint, and he says it's about his departure. In the Greek, that word is Exodus. And any reader of the Bible knows that Exodus is a word that has so much connotation to it. It's the name of the second book in the Bible. It's when God saved Israel out of Egypt. But now he's going to complete something similar to that, something better than that even. And that's something the Old Testament itself was always pointing to. In Deuteronomy 31 through 6, God promised that after Israel was cursed, he was going to go out and save his people. He's going to bring them back to the land of their fathers. And he says this at the last. And the Lord your, in verse 6, 31, uh, verse 6, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all you, that you may live. And Jeremiah and the prophets also have a sort of promise and expectation of a second exodus. In Jeremiah 16, 14, we read, Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when it shall no longer be said, as the Lord lives who brought you up, the people of Israel, out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives who brought up the uh, people of Israel out of the north country, now the, all the countries which have driven them. For I will bring them back to their own land that I gave to their fathers. So he's calling for a day that one day a new and better exodus will happen. That no longer people say God is the God of the exodus, but rather a God of the new exodus. And this is what Jesus is bringing about. He's going to go to Jerusalem, and he's going to die on the cross. He's going to take Israel's curse, and he's going to defeat the enemy. And that's also what we need, because we all need a new exodus too. And that's why we can't unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. That's why the Old Testament isn't useless, because the Old Testament is our story too. We all have fallen short of God's standard. We have all been cast out of Eden in exile. And we all are in desperate need of a Savior, a desperate need of a new exodus to take us out into a new creation. And that's what Jesus is going to do for all of us. And that's why a lot of scholars, and I agree, think that Luke 19.10 represents the summary statement of Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Luke, which he says, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. He's the God who came down into our exile, into our mess, to bring us out of it, to save us out of it, to die on the cross and save us out of it. And that's the God we see. That's the Christ we see there, here. But what are the disciples doing while all this is happening? They're seeing Moses and Elijah. Moses is literally back from the dead. Elijah's uh, here, and Jesus is shining forth like lightning. What are they doing? And we read in verse uh, 32 that they were heavy with sleep. They were sleeping for some of the time. We don't know how much of the time, but they were missing out on one of the greatest displays of glory in all of history, and they were sleeping. Like, imagine, who, what would I give to hear uh, Moses and Elijah, Jesus, have a, some sort of conversation about the atonement? Like, imagine what kind of glorious things they would have heard, but they were sleeping, but they, and they missed out of some of the, the greatest display of glory up to this point in redemption history. They were missing out. And we miss out, too, when we have spiritual laziness about the means of grace, when we don't feel like reading our Bibles or feel like going to church or feel like praying to God. We're missing out, too. We, when it was just Jesus by themselves, they fell asleep. They didn't think anything glorious was going to happen of it. And sometimes we can get that way of reading our Bible or going to church that there might not be any glory of it. But when we know that God will deliver and he promises he'll deliver, 
we see that the glory comes from it and that he will deliver, he will show himself. We miss little transfigurations every time we've refused to read our Bible, go to, not go to church or pray, the means of grace. They're not just a means to themselves. We never read or preach or do anything. It's so that God may be glorified. God may show himself and reveal himself. That's the reason we do these things, and that kind of fear of missing out should be in us. And as a college student, that fear of missing out is in me a lot. It's the kind of thing that will keep you from, like, your friends asking you to do anything or go to Taco Bell at 1130 when you have a paper due at midnight, and you'll go out anyway because you won't want to miss out on the adventure. But we know we have something so much greater than a little adventure to Taco Bell And when we come to church, when we read our Bible, when we pray, we see the God of glory come to us. The God that's shown in Jesus Christ, even now, I hope. Um, And that's the kind of thing we we must not be like disciples. And then Peter goes on, since he hasn't been, he's not in his right mind, he's not knowing what he's saying, because Luke tells us he offers to build tents. And apparently this is something wrong on his part, but it's not necessarily clear. I think the later verse will make it clear why it's wrong for him to want to build tents. So what happens next? God comes. So we heard what Jesus' testimony in and of himself is who he is. We see what Moses and Elijah and the prophets see who he is. And now we get God the Father himself testimony of who he is. So a cloud comes out of heaven and dwells on the mountain. And anyone who knows the Old Testament knows that this is something that God does with covenantal significance when there's something big happening. This is what God does at the end of Exodus, when he, in Exodus 40, when he fills the temple with his glory. It's also what he does in 1 Kings when he fills uh, Solomon's temple once it's built. This is what is what's sometimes called the Shekinah glory dwelling on here. This is how serious God takes Jesus Christ and what, who he is and how we must get it. So, here we have what God says after it. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And here we have what God thinks Jesus is. He calls him his son, which first off is a, is a confirmation of Jesus' messiahship. Jesus is the God's messiah, something that was promised in Psalm 2 and 2 Samuel 7. He's God's perfect son, obedient son. He's, this is the kind of God, a messiah, that God wants. And that's something that no one in the, uh, not even the disciples didn't want a Christ like this. They didn't want a Christ that would suffer. Peter said, no, may it never be. This, is, this might not be the God, the Messiah that we want, but this is the Messiah we need, and this is the Messiah God gives us and God approves of. The God, the, the Messiah who is a suffering servant who dies for his people. And we don't have to worry that sometime between the baptism and sometime between now, Jesus veered off course and went and done his own thing. God is completely happy with Jesus, what Jesus has done. But also it goes to a deeper level. Jesus is not just God's son in the messianic way. He's God's son eternally. This is something he's always been. Eternity past, he's always been God's son, not just something he was when he was born in a manger. He's always been God's son. He's a perfect imprint of his nature, as Hebrews uh, 1 says. Everything you see in God is true of, I mean, see in Jesus is true of God. That's his stamp of approval being there. Like father, like son. He's saying he's representing me well, in a way, saying here, that he's my chosen one. He's my son. What he's doing shows perfectly what, who I'm like. And that's good news to us. 
that the Christian, when he is asked, who is God like, we can say, Jesus Christ. That the God who we worship is the one who welcomes sinners, who forgives, who is graceful, who goes all the way down. Unlike the gods of uh, Muslims or Mormons or the other Zeus, they all just stand up there waiting for us to pile enough good works so that we may go up to them. But our God comes down to us, dies for us, and gives us grace. He's not just standing up there all idly. He came down, and he is forgives. And that's the good news of the Christian faith and the good news of Jesus and the, who we see he is and who that means God is. And, that's, and then we get finally, listen to him. Since Jesus is the divine Messiah, the divine Son of God, who is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament and all humanity's hopes, we have to listen to him. He gives us an imperative. This, all that being true, we have to listen to him. Jesus, you can't afford not to listen to him. This is who God's like. This is who God's Savior is. There's no fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies without him. There's no salvation without him. We have to listen to him. And now more than ever, we have so many people trying to get us to listen to them. So many TV, media, podcasts, people are trying to get us to listen to them. So many worldviews and so many opinions about God, but we must listen to Jesus. We must always give ear to Jesus, no matter what comes through life. When your flesh is tempting you to give in to sin, we must listen to him. For he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. If you, if you listen to Satan saying, God does not love you. Listen to him. He says, as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. If you are, your body is giving away and you don't think you're going to make it, you think you're too tired because of the anxieties of life are getting you down, listen to him. Come, all who are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. If you listen to the media and all the buzz saying the world's going to hell and there's no hope, listen to him who says, I overcome the world. I'm coming soon. We can listen to him that's our hope. What he says, we hold on to because he is all that beautiful God that we see in Christ is true, and we can't afford to not listen to him. And then after all that fair, all that glory, it's, and they, when the voice spoke and Jesus was found alone. All of it's gone. It's just back to Jesus. But is, are the disciples any less rich without it? They still have Jesus, and that goes back to what I think some of the disciples' big problem was. When they were building tents, it's not necessarily building tents is wrong. It's that, if you read in the beginning of verse 33, it's when they were parting from him. It's when Elijah and Moses were leaving is when all of a sudden they wanted to have tents. When it was just Jesus alone praying, they were sleeping. They weren't interested. But once Moses and Elijah are here, let's get up and work. So that it shows that they are maybe even putting Jesus under Moses and Elijah or making him equal to them. They weren't interested until Moses and Elijah appeared. But now, they, they, Moses and Elijah had to go. That's not, the disciples and we do not need another Moses and Elijah. We need a divine Messiah who saves us from our sins, who's better than Moses and Elijah, who makes a better covenant than Moses and Elijah, who leaves us on a better exodus than Moses, who actually can get in the land himself unlike Moses, who can atone for his people's uh, sin unlike Moses, who, unlike Elijah, can actually, his prophetic word can actually change our hearts. And unlike Elijah, he actually can stand still when Jezebel starts uh, threatening him. 
Um, Moses and Elijah were great men of God, but, if you, but the disciples had Jesus. They, they had all they needed right there. They had more than all they needed. They had everything Moses and Elijah were pointing to, everything they were longing for right there, and they missed it, and we miss it too when we don't see the beauty that is in Christ Jesus. And we can all get caught up in the world. There's people that are going to leave. And even being at this church, there's people who have left, and it hurts, like Seth and Nicholas and Dorian. Uh, it hurts when they're leaving, but if I still have Christ, I'm going to be okay, and we're going to be okay. And one day, as hard as it's going to sound, is one day our faithful pastors, such as uh, Brian and Jonathan, they're, they might leave. They might go with the Lord or might be called somewhere else. But as long as Fisherville has Jesus, we're, we're fine. We're going to make it through. We're more than okay. We have the divine Messiah that we've always wanted and always needed. And that's hope that no matter who goes away, no matter who we have, we have Christ. That's all we need. And one day, that glory that we see on the transfiguration is going to fulfill the whole earth. And that, that's going to be amazing. If that's not interesting to you, that's not what your hope is, then you're lost. We need to have, to see them out. We need to know Christ. That's what Satan wants us. He wants you, in uh, 2 Corinthians 4, he says, he's the God of the world who blinds people from the glory of Christ. That's his job. His main job is to blind us from seeing Christ. So I pray that if you don't know Christ and you don't uh, know him if, today and you never trusted in him, that you would listen to him. Listen to what he says when he says, repent and believe the gospel. Or listen to when he says, all those who come for, to me, I'll no means cast out. He's, he, he will accept you. And he, he is the Christ who's died for us. But the glory of the transfiguration shows us the divine Messiah who's the fulfillment of all our hopes, all of Israel's hopes, all of humanity's hopes, who's greater than any other. But that's not the greatest glory of Christ's life. The greatest glory of Christ's life would be in a different mouth, mountain called Golgotha, Calvary. A different mountain, instead of being robed with white, he's going to be covered with his own blood. And a different mountain, instead of being his face being transfigured, it's going to be plucked of its beard. Instead of having Moses and Elijah with him, he has two robbers on each side of him. And he dies. And that's apparently the glory of God. And But God does not stay silent like he does in the transfiguration. He speaks in words, uh, actions that are way louder than words. He vindicates his son by resurrecting him from the dead and sitting him on the right hand where he'll rule from on high and he's going to come back. And that glory is going to fill the world and that's our hope. That's who we worship. That's what we want as Christians. And I hope that we would listen to him. We would see Christ for all of his glory without his makeup, with all of his goodness and see the beautiful God that we worship that we may resist the temptation of the devil and live for him and listen to him. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, helping me. I pray that this word would stay with us and we pray that your glory would uh, follow us and we would be able to tell others about Jesus and his greatness this week. And I thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.